Arshad Vayishlach, just a few dedications before we start. First of all, today's learning at Yeshiva Araita was dedicated by uh, Rabbi Charlie Savinor and Julie Walpart, who are the famous parents of the one and only Giuseppe Savinor, right? In honor of, of the original Giuseppe, Yossi Savinor, Zichron Levracha, your grandfather, I assume, whose yorzeit is today. This should be in the for his neshama. That's number one. Number two, um, we have a very close friend, um, Jackie Abels, um, Ora Zelda Batlea Rachel, who is undergoing an operation as we speak. And uh, I said that I would uh, mention her at the beginning of Shurim today, that she should have a successful operation, uh, easy recovery with no pain. So on am she's a really, really special person. Um, also, some of you may know of Susan. Susan works in the office in America. She's actually the one who processed all your applications. And her husband is uh, undergoing a couple of tests that are pretty significant. And uh, his name is Chaim Yitzchak Ben Shein Hinda. And Bezrat Hashem, he should have good results. We look forward to hearing good news soon. Um, and last, but definitely not least, we want to have in mind Daniel Shimon Ben Sharon Perez. You all met Rabbi Perez earlier this week. I don't think anybody could sit and not be inspired by that story. He, along with Itai Ben Chagita Matan Ben Anat, who are the missing tank crew, um, you know, we're pretty sure that they're being held hostage by Hamas. Um, the agreements are starting to be formed as to whether they will include soldiers and men. Uh, let's hope that all the hostages come home safely soon, all the chaylim are protected. Right? Parashat Vayishlach. So, I want to tell you um, a story that had an impact on me. I had a really close friend. Um, he was one of the guys. He was actually a year younger than me. He was Shana Aleph when I was Shana Bet um, in Gush. And he kind of took me under his wing as an Israeli to teach me the Israeli ropes. Um, how that happened and who he was, I will tell you the story at Har Herzl and Yemazikaran, most probably. But I will tell you one story. Um, his unit, I actually fought to be with them. I really wanted to be with them in Khir and Givati and. I had glasses back then. You couldn't get into infantry with certain glasses, whatever. It's not true anymore today. So I ended up in tanks, which probably saved me. It's probably part of why I'm still here. But in any event, um, in the second shiva back then, when you did Hezder, and you served in that type of a unit, so we went to the army for nine months, and then you would go back to yeshiva. And then after you went back to yeshiva, you'd go back again for, you know, another six months. So the second Sherut, it was a little different for me because I did commander's course and officer's course. But for the regular guys who were going just to be soldiers, so the second Sherut, his whole unit, they went into Lebanon. And at that time, the border, the, 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 the zone that was controlled by Israel went all the way up to the Beirut-Damascus Highway. Okay, this is in like 1984. I think we went back in November, some October, November, or whatever. I mean, I was in officer's course, it was different. And... Um, and during the period that they were supposed to be in, they were put in a mutzav, in a position called Milano, all right, which was right by the Awali River. And that was much further south than the Beirut-Damascus Highway. And this was like a position in the middle of the country, in the middle of the Israeli security zone. It was a pretty safe area. There were a lot of Israeli troops around and so on and so forth. Um, there weren't really terrorist units that had a chance to really develop because there was so much army in the area. But as Israel gradually wanted to pull out of Lebanon, we'd been in Lebanon really since June of 82. This was already, you know, sort of two and a half years later in 1984. Nobody anticipated we would be there that long. So they started to pull down. And the next thing you know, they pulled down, I forget if it was the Awali or the Zarani River. 
And all of a sudden, their position, which had been in the middle of a... All of a sudden, this became a frontline position. Right? Like, imagine if, God forbid, Hamas had taken over what they wanted to take over. And all of a sudden, there's a border of Hamas, and they're sitting on the edge of Yerushalayim. All of a sudden, this isn't like yeshiva in the middle of Israel. It becomes on the edge of Hamas. That's a whole different reality. And you begin to see this very quickly. Um, you know, shootings, ambushes, anti-tank weapons. Um, they were ambushed by a Hezbollah unit who shot anti-tank weapons at their unit. They fought back. They killed a few terrorists. None of their men were injured. They actually had a Sudato Daya. And then on the 19th of Adar, in uh, 1985, um, they were ambushed on Gesher Kasmi on a, villa, on a bridge that was in their area. And Dani and Didi were killed. Dani and Dani Mojitz and Didi Khan. And about a week before this, the, their commanding officer realized that they were being watched. It wasn't difficult to figure out. You'd see like a pickup truck and be in the distance. They'd be watching you. You'd see the glint of glass and realize they're watching you with binoculars. And it would really freak you out because you realize they were gathering intel on you. So the commander realized they have to start changing up their patrol routes. So he would regularly change their patrol routes. So one day he changed their patrol route and they find themselves walking through a field of melons. They're walking through a field of melons. And, you know, I don't know if anybody here has ever, have you ever been in a field of melons? Okay, so what's, what's, what's the challenge in a field of melons? Not step on the melons. But you're in the Israeli army. You're on patrol. There are Hezbollah terrorists in the area. The last thing on your mind is the melons, except for Dani. Dani had a real issue with the Chayalim who accidentally stepped on melons. And the guys would like, you know, sort of debate this with him. And his basic contention was, this field belongs to somebody. And when this is over and we're done and we're not here, he has to come back and farm his melons. These are not our melons. And we have a responsibility to be an ethical army. And we should be careful not to step on the melons. Now, here it just sounds like an interesting story. It's hard for me to explain to you how mind-boggling that is. That an Israeli patrol is, is being careful not to squash melons because some Lebanese farmer, who isn't in the area probably because it's a no-man's land, that they shouldn't destroy his melons so he can come back to... That's, that's unbelievable. Like when you contrast that against what's been going on in the south with the fields that were destroyed by Hamas, it's a completely different reality. And it raises an interesting question. What is our responsibility, you know, in such circumstances, ethically, morally, halachically, right? Is there even a dilemma regarding this sort of question? And what's interesting is that this question is picked up upon by Chazal in this week's parsha. Okay? Yaakov has been away. He ran away from Asa. And he didn't run away under such great circumstances, right? Because Esav says, Yikrevu yemei avi, Yitzchak lamut, right? The day will come where our father will die. For whatever the reason, Esav's big merit is kibbut avayim, that he at least doesn't do this while Yitzchak is alive, although that's debatable. And I will kill you. Why does Esav want to kill Yaakov? Because Yaakov... No, come on. Took the bracha. Okay took the bracha, earned the bracha, stole the bracha. Is the bracha connected to the Bechorah? 
is the Bechor the responsibility and the Brachas the rewards? You can't have one without the other. That's a whole interesting question. But Esav wants to kill Yaakov, so Yaakov gets away. Now, it's interesting that Yaakov gets away and he goes to the house of Lavan. And if you're Esav, and as we'll see in a second, Esav has quite an army, why don't you just head down to Lavan's land and just kill Yaakov down there? So it may be that Esav will kill Yaakov, but really he just wants Yaakov out of the way. So Yaakov is out of the way. Esav wants to inherit the land. Yaakov's not in the land. But now Yaakov's coming back. If you remember our discussion from last week, Yaakov starts out last week's portion dreaming about ladders and angels and God, and he ends up dreaming about sheep. And we said that if you're dreaming about sheep, it's time to go home. Right? Okay, so now he's on his way home. So Yaakov's on his way home. Now, if you didn't read the Parsha and you don't know anything, what should Yaakov's energy be? He's Yaakov Avinu. What should he be feeling? Pardon? Yeah, come and get it. <laughs> Seriously? You want to mess with the grandson of Avram Avinu, with the son of Yitzchak? Like, I know people who, if they walk out of the room and, and forget to touch a mezuzah, they'll get out of their car and walk back because they don't have an eye in their eye. Can you imagine what it is to play games with Yaakov Avinu? Like, that's unbelievable. And Yaakov knows this. Because Hashem has told him, right? Yaakov is promised by Hashem what Yitzchak was promised, what Avram is promised. He will inherit the land, and he will have offspring will inherit the land. You're going to build the Jewish people. So, so Esau can't touch him. And yet, what does the prophet say? Right? Yaakov is trying to hedge his bets. Now, you could chalk this up. To establish that you have to do, if they're willing to do your bit. I mean, if Hashem runs the world and it says that Hashem will protect us in many different places, right? So why are we worried when we go to war? Right? You ever think about that? Okay. So Yaakov hedges his bet. Yaakov sends messengers to Esav. What does he want to tell Esav? No. He tells these messengers, whoever they are, to say, He calls Esav his master. Right? He, there's no arrogance here. He doesn't care. Like, if it, if it takes bowing down to Esav so that we can put this behind us, I'm okay with that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Chazal debate that, but we're not going to go there right now. I lived with Lavan and I've been late until now getting back to you. That's a pretty serious late note. It's like 22 years, but okay. You almost expect this to be like, you know, Yaakov says he was late, signed Yaakov's mother. You know what I mean? Fine, okay, right? And I have lots of wealth. It's an interesting thing you're going to tell Esau. Why would you tell Esau if you have a lot of wealth? Maybe you'd want to hide your wealth so he doesn't steal it from you. So what would be the value of telling Esau that you're wealthy? Esau values, values wealth. What will Esau think if he knows Yaakov is wealthy? Maybe Yaakov will want to buy his way out. Maybe Esau will be placated by bribes. Okay, that's one strategy. I've been living with Lavan and I've been late. Famous, 
famous medrash quoted by Rashi, Lavan Gauti, Ve. Uh, we haven't done our sign, Nicola. Ve. Taryag Mitzvot Shamarti. Right, the letters of Garti I lived with Lavan are the same letters as Taryag. I've been keeping 613 mitzvahs. Of course, you realize that's not possible. Nobody can keep 613 mitzvahs. If there's no Beis HaMikdash, you can't keep the mitzvah of the Beis HaMikdash. If you're not a Kohen, you can't keep the mitzvah of Kohen. If you don't get divorced, which Yaakov never does, you can't keep the mitzvah of a dead. So this obviously is an allegory, and maybe for another time. Okay. By the way, everybody forgets the second half of that medrash. Right? In Mavan Garti, V'taryag Mitzvah Shamati, Ve... Am I remember the second line? Lo And I didn't learn from the wicked ways of love. So one way of looking at that matter is just to tell Asav, listen, if I kept it together and I maintained my level in the house of Lavan, then I got a lot of merit. You don't want to mess with me. I'm, I'm, I'm protected. There's another way to look at this. Right? I lived at the house of Lavan, but I didn't learn from Lavan's ways. There's a lot you can learn from a lovin. I didn't learn from the bren of lovin, from the enthusiasm of lovin. What do I mean by that? Soloveitchik has a whole drush on this, which I once heard many years ago from Riverskin. Um, when I was a kid, so we used to walk the show up from over West End Avenue, up to Broadway, and then down to the show. And every Sunday morning, I would go to my dad, Dominion, at show. And when we went we would pass this office called the OTB. Anybody know what the OTB is? They don't have this anymore because you're all online. Off-track betting. People didn't want to have to go gamble all the way at the racetrack. So they had an office where you could go, and there was a big TV, and you could watch the races, which was a big deal to have a big TV in an office, right? And you could bet on the races. Okay. So, I mean, this is Sunday morning. At 8 o'clock, the office would open. At 7.30, there was a line around the block. Right? It's like if you would go to a movie. You guys ever go to a movie theater? Oh, okay. So if there's a 9 o'clock movie, you don't walk into the movie theater at 9, 10. 9 o'clock, you've got to be there to catch the beginning. You don't even have to catch the movie to catch the previews. If anybody comes two minutes late to the movie, oh, psh, come on, we're watching. But if, if Night Seder is at 8 o'clock, ah, it could be 8 5, it could be 8 15. We should learn from the brand of loving. We should be enthusiastic about Torah like they're enthusiastic about running to the gambling joint. Okay. And Yaakov is having this dialogue with Esau about, you know, who he is and where he's at. Presumably that Esau should know he's not looking for a fight. He wants to be at peace. Okay. And then comes, So the messengers come back to Yaakov. We came to your brother. And he's coming this way with 400 fighting men. Now, by the way, it's not clear that the Malachim ever give Esau the message. It doesn't say so. Maybe they go, they see 400 men. That's a, that's a massive army. Avram has how many soldiers with which he basically conquers the world, beats the greatest empire? 300. Well, 300 plus, right. Pardon? Just Eliezer. Right, maybe, right. Okay, right? And this is 400 men. This is a massive army in the population of those days. So Yaakov hears this, and what happens? Yaakov is very afraid. He's greatly distressed. And he starts to split up the nation, etc., etc. Now, what's the problem here, theologically? Yeah? How could you be afraid if you're Yaakov Avinu? What are you afraid of? 
Like, I understand Benny Friedman's afraid. Yaakov Avinu? I actually took a lot of comfort from this. Knowing that even Yaakov Avinu was scared, it's okay to be scared. So that's not what, what, what the measure says. This is what Rashi says. This is unbelievable. Listen to this. Vayira, vayitzer, vayira, shema He's afraid that he might be killed. Why is he afraid of me? That's a natural fear. There's 400 people coming. Okay? He is equally distressed that he might have to kill others. He's afraid of being killed and he's afraid of killing. Now that's an interesting question. Why would he be afraid of killing? So, the Sifti Chachamim, they were shot by bats, so we've spoken about before. Sifti Chachamim lived in the end of the 1600s. Um, his heyday was like the 1670s, 1680s in Amsterdam. And he has a commentary which is very often on the daf in the Kodosh Kodos. Um, and he says the following. First of all, why is he afraid that he's going to get killed? So he says, Halo kvar hifticho ha-kadosh baruchu betetomi beit aviv v'ashivotich al-adamazo. Hashem already promised Yaakov, I'm going to return you to this land. What's he worried about? Kvar tireitz v'gavar, the murder explains, Shema yigom achet. That's all good if you remain Yaakov Avinu. But if you've made mistakes, you're not the same Yaakov you were. Right? There's a, a famous discussion in the Gemara. It says, uh, for a Mohammed Rashut, can't do this for Mohammed's mitzvah. There are two types of wars. There's a war which is a mitzvah. According to the Rambam, that is any time a nation rises up against the Jewish people to destroy them in their land or destroy them because they're Jews. It is impossible to me to imagine that there is anyone who has any halachic bone in their body, who doesn't see that we're in the middle of a Mechemim Mitzvah. That's, by the way, the reason that hundreds and hundreds of people who have been learning in Shiva, Haredim, etc., are now offering to go to the army because they realize the Mitzvah, to their credit, okay? Even if you debated it before. Um, and then there's a Mechemim Rashut. Mechemim Rashut is like a law of conquest. Like David Amalek decides, you know, our water is threatened, we're going to take over the other side of the Jordan River. We're going to attack Rabat Amon. They're not trying to destroy you. It's just in Israel's interest to do that, and they're idolaters. You're allowed to do that without getting into the whole back and forth about that. That's a Mohammed Rashut. Now, if, you're, if the king is saying that we're going to war for Mohammed Rashut to expand our territory because it's strategically valuable, whatever, then there are certain people who are not obligated to go. And one of them is if a person is afraid. So the Gemara asks, what's he afraid of? Anybody remember what it says? This is unbelievable. He's uh, afraid of his own sin. Pardon? So he's afraid of hate? But which hate is it that he's afraid of? This is crazy. Come on. Which a big hate that a person would be afraid of? Murder. Lashon Hara. Nope. You know what it says? Lest he accidentally one day put on his tefillin shel rosh before his film show, yeah. That's a very strange thing to be worried about. First of all, that's such a minor thing to do. Second of all, has anybody here ever accidentally taken out their show rosh before the show, yeah? Especially when you're a new bar mitzvah, that happens. Has anybody actually put on the film show rosh and not the film show, yeah? Anybody here ever? Really? You put on your film show rosh? Wow, okay. Don't go to war, all right? Okay? Never met anybody who ever did that. That's interesting. We have to have a deep discussion. <laughs> That's just not the normal thing somebody does. You don't put on your tilt show rose. You're not allowed to put it on without your tilt show. Yeah, for whatever the reason. 
So what does it mean to put on your Tzolun Shal Rosh before your Tzolun Shal Yad? Well, Tzolun Shal... What do you, if you had to pick what Tzolun Shal Rosh represents and what Tzolun Shal Yad represents, what do you think they would be? Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yad is the heart. What is the heart? Yeah, no, your heart, your, your, your Yad faces the heart, but what's it called? It's called Tzolun Shal Yad. So what does that represent? Action. And what does the Rosh represent? Thought. Intellect. Right? Machshava. And, and there's an idea there that there's a balance to the two. Sometimes you have to think before you act, and sometimes you have to act before you think. And that balance, if you get it wrong, is a significant issue. So I'll leave you to think about how that applies. So what is Yaakov afraid of? Right? Okay. So maybe he's afraid that he made a mistake. He did hate. If you chew before you go to war, it's a very intense experience, by the way. But then the Shabbat Vest continues. Listen to this, right? Yeshlomar de Yaakov vaday lo ayayare shema yaroget Esav. What does it mean in the Medrash Tanchuma that he's afraid he might kill people? Don't worry about killing Esav, right? Dekaimalan habala hargechash came larga because if somebody comes to kill you, you're allowed to kill him first. Elosh Yaakov ayamit yare. In other words, Yaakov is worried about the innocent bystanders. He's worried about the civilians in Gaza. And that's an interesting question. Do I have a responsibility to take care of civilian life when I'm halachically and legally allowed to kill? Now, why is Yaakov allowed to kill? Why does he not have to worry about this? Pardon? Okay. Right? So if somebody is chasing you, never mind if he's chasing someone else, you're allowed to kill them first. So that's pshat, and clearly halacha. But that's not entirely true. Okay? Don't worry about it. Nobody noticed. Right? That's not entirely true. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says the following. It's the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Adaf Ayin Dalad, and it says like this. I'm, I'm not going to read you the whole sugya, but if you're curious, you can look it up. The Tanya Rabbi Yonatan ben Shaul Omer, Rodef, Shaya Rodef Achachavero, right, if you're running after someone, Lehorgo, right, you're, you're see, you see that someone's chasing someone else, he's a Rodef, he's trying to kill him, right? V'yocholat zilo be'echad me'evarav. And you can save him by only attacking one of his limbs. You're an expert marksman, okay? And he's running after him. And you know, you're, 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 you know what? You're, you're holding a handgun. And he's, he's, he's got a sword out. And you know you can shoot him in the leg. Right? But for whatever reason, you don't shoot him in the leg. Veloitil, and he didn't save him. He just decided to kill him. So you could have saved him. You could have shot him in the leg. Instead, you shot him in the heart. You know, let's be to be safe and sorry. So the Gemara concludes here, that person who could have killed the civilian, who could have injured him, but instead he kills him, he's liable for death. He is put to death. And the Rambam, listen to the Rambam Pastans, this is actually a fascinating sack. This is in Hilchos Rotseach Hashmias Nefesh. Where is Hilchos Rotseach? What's safer? Laws of murder, protecting life. Pardon? So interesting. Remember I told you at the beginning of the year how the Rambam organizes things also tells you a lot? 
It's not in Shoftim. It's not in Mishpatim. Even though Hilchos would say, you would think it has to do this in Edrin. Pardon? Nope. It's not in Zebra Mada, though we know that's five sets of Allah. It's in Ezekiel. You have to stay on a bet, you'll get the answers right. Right? It's in Ezekiel because Rotseach is primarily murdering someone is a form of damage. You take away his life, you damage his family. That's fascinating. That's more important than the fact that it's connected to an engine. The Ramah is making a statement. Anyway, Perak Aleph Halacha Yid Gimel. Listen to what the Ramah says. Kol Hayachol Lahatzil Ve'ever Me'everat. Anybody who can, who can avoid having to kill someone by simply wounding him in one of his limbs, Ve'lo Tarach Bekach. But he doesn't bother. Takes a little more effort to do that. Elaitzil Benafshoshel Rodev. He saved him by killing the Rodev, by killing the, 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 the chaser. He is a murderer. He killed a person when he didn't have to. He's chayav mita. But then the Rambam adds something. But a bezdin cannot put him to death. Now why can't a bezdin put him to death? Why can't he be put to death in a court of law, yeah? Uh, because there's no way that they can know whether or not he... Ah, so that's one way of looking at it. Right? You, you can't possibly... You know, in order to put him to death, right, you have to know that he could have injured him and instead he killed him and maybe even that he intended to do that. But listen to what the Mishnah, the, the Rav Yosef Karo in the Kesef Mishnah says. Since this person only intended to save his friend by killing this fellow, lo shayach there's no, there's no ability to give him a warning. And without Adim and Asra, without a warning, you can't put a person to death in a basement. Now that's not a small thing. To know that you're doing something that you should be punished by death. Hashem will take care of you. So this is fascinating. There is a legal obligation to protect life to such a degree that Yaakov Avinu pauses and is afraid lest he might have to kill civilians. That's an interesting question. It's interesting that, you know, sometimes in life, by the way, this is not the first time we find this. Anybody know where the first time we find this is, this concept? It's a little more hidden the first time. Where's the first time I find this? Nobody? Anybody have a bar mitzvah parasha lech lecha? No? Okay. So, Hashem comes to Avram Okay? Now this is before the whole story of the battles and the five kings and everything else. And, and what does it say? Right? It says, You will not be punished because of all those people that you killed. Now that's fascinating. Why did Avram kill so many people? Because he fought a war. Nobody talks about that. Right? There were four kings fighting the five kings, the four kings won. So presumably, this is the mightiest empire right now on the face of the earth. This is the first world war at least described to us in the Torah. And Avram takes 300 men and he goes to war. They don't just pay tiddlywinks. He has to kill people. The Gemara talks about all these miracles as dirt turns into arrows, but he's killing people. Avram is this person who is full of chesed. He lives loving kindness and he has to kill people. And Hashem has to tell him, 
you don't know, in other words, Avram was afraid or would have been afraid because he killed people. Well, why is he afraid? He's killing people who are holding his nephew captive. It's totally alakli allowed. If you know that a woman is being held under Shifa Hospital and there are presumably patients there and you suspect that those patients are involved, maybe the doctors are involved, they arrested the director of Shifa Hospital because he had an entire terrorist enterprise working in his hospital. It's impossible to imagine he'd know about it. Now, does that make him part of the problem? Interesting question, and that's what they're investigating, I imagine. But if the only way to get into that hospital, right, is in order to get Israeli Jewish civilians free, is to blow a hole and risk killing civilians, then that's what you do. And that's not a halachic dilemma. Not in any way, shape, or form. You have to allow, Rav Goren is famous um, in the Lebanon War, 1982. So the PLO, we're going to finish in a minute. The PLO uh, took over southern Lebanon and they turned it into Fatah land. I remember um, we had to, there was a convent, like a monastery, and we had to deliver some food to them. They were really suffering there. Um, and this was sometime later already. And it turned out that some of these nuns spoke English. And so I, I, I was talking to them. And it was amazing what they were saying. They were so happy that we were there, the Israeli army, um, because they lived in terror, right? The, 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 the PLO, never mind Hezbollah, they hate the Christians almost as much as they hate the Jews. They terrorized them. They raped them. I mean, terrible stories that were coming out of these guys. I mean, raping nuns. It just doesn't get worse than that in the press. Nobody talks about that anymore, right? So these were barbarians. Like, people think, you know, sort of, well, the Palestinian Authority, they'll be better than the Hamas. It's the same pollution. It's just one's in a toilet and one's in a sewer. I just don't know any other way to describe it. So we came into Lebanon, and we wanted to destroy Fatah. And there are civilians there. And the easiest way to do it was to take people from the road to the north, right? There's a couple of rivers and highways that intersect the country from east to west, box them in, and then start to close in. Rav Goren, based on the Gemara and based on the Pesach and the Rambam, who was the chief rabbi of the Israeli army at the time, said you can't do that. Halachically, you have to leave them an avenue of escape. You have to leave them, allow them the possibility to escape. It's Beferish and the Gemara. Yeshua gives them three avenues. They can fight, they can accept Shev Mitzvah or they can run. And the Raman passes, that's what you have to do. Now, nobody should learn Psach from this. I'm not giving a shear on this. It's a little more involved. Rav Azrieli, by the way, disagreed. If, if I, think, I think it was Rav Azrieli who said, no, you don't have to do it for various reasons. Who does that? What does that even mean? I want you to understand that there's a difference between a halachic question and a moral dilemma. A moral dilemma means that there are two possibilities and I have to choose one, but I'm still bothered by the other. You know, um, a woman is pregnant and the only way to save the woman's life is to kill the fetus. Incredibly painful thing for a medical team to have to do. Now that's a moral dilemma. You have to make a decision. You can't let them both die. But when you're making the decision to save the woman's life, which is what halacha rules until the baby's born, until the head's out, you're still struggling with the fact that you have, you have to end the life of the baby. Right? You know, uh, I don't know, uh, you decide that you want to stay in Israel, I don't know, do the army, uh, whatever it is. 
And there's a mitzvah to live in Israel. Whether you're high of today is an interesting question, but there's a mitzvah to live in Israel. But your parents say, we don't want you to stay. Now, halachically, you're not obligated in Kibbutz Abeim. It's a Gemara in Kedusha, and the Chasm and Sofer Paskins, but it's a moral dilemma. Your parents brought you up. <clears throat> They've given you everything in your life. You owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. How can you do something that goes against their wishes? And yet you have a mitzvah. That's a moral dilemma. It means that you have to make one choice, but you're going to be bothered by both. I think what Yaakov is teaching us is, it may be that we have to do something, we should be bothered by it. If you're in an alley, and a kid with a tube, I think I told you the story, jumps out from behind an alley, and you realize that he's about to shoot an RPG at your tank, and then you realize he's eight years old, there's absolutely no question whatsoever what the halakhli correct thing to do. By the way, obligation is, you have to take out that kid. There's no way, there's, there's not even the possibility that you might be sure enough to wound him and not kill him. It's just not shaykh. So you have to press that trigger and it doesn't even matter where the shell lands, he's gone. But the image of what a 105 millimeter tank shell does to, to, to a child, that sticks in your head. And, and, and that's just one example of many. You know, you're, you're running after a kid who's basically, and you don't know he's a kid. You know, you, you, you see a, a, a boy, he's holding a Molotov cocktail on a, on a street in Ramallah. And there are Jewish citizens driving in cars. And if you let that kid throw that Molotov cocktail, he could hit a car full of civilians and a Molotov cocktail will explode and will kill people. So you have no choice. You scream out wakif, which means to stop. You do everything you can do. When you see he's about to throw it, you're allowed to shoot. And not only are you allowed to shoot, you're obligated to shoot. You have to kill somebody who could be 12 years old. And you're halakhly obligated to do it, but it's a dilemma. Because you're taking a human life, and you don't really blame that 12-year-old kid. He's brought up in a society of evil, in, in an educational system that's abhorrent, how do you know if you were in that uh, educational system, you wouldn't be throwing Molotov cocktails at women and children? So put aside that there's something so off with such a society, so antithetical to everything we believe in, not just in the state of Israel, but in the West, hopefully, or it should be, but you're forced to take the life of a human being, and that has to bother you. And if it doesn't bother you, then that should bother you. How amazing is it at the birth of the Jewish people, we're about to see, we're literally in the moments of the birth of, of the Jewish people. The individual Jew, Avram, has an individual Jew, Yitzchak, has an individual Yaakov. Yaakov now becomes the family of Beit Yisrael. And in a few more parashiot, in, in parashat Shemot, they will become Am Yisrael. So this is really the, the, the seed that is beginning to sprout of the Jewish people, which is meant to be a model for how the world is supposed to behave. And in those initial ideas, one of them is you should care about every human being. You should care about every human life. It doesn't mean, it may be that the only way to, to resolve what we're going through now is to wipe out every last Hamasnik. It may be that you have to take an entire population of people who live in Aza, you don't know who's Hamas and who's Nanamas, and push them out. It could be. It could be you have to level and destroy an entire city. That could be. But it's your body. It, it should cause us pain. What a powerful idea. You know, the, the ethical challenge to be the part of an army 
that is meant to be an ethical beacon. All the morons in the world who believe that Israel is just, that the Israeli army, all the nonsense they say, understand this is the most ethical force of fighting individuals the world has ever seen. And that's something to be proud of. It's something to be challenged by. And it's painful to see that tens of thousands of our boys and girls are now put into harm's way, and, and it breaks my heart. Like, I remember going through this. I remember what it is to struggle with these dilemmas. I remember what it's like to have nightmares and all that. And now my kids are going to go through that. That's painful that they're going to have to do these things. They've already been doing these things. On the other hand, what a bracha that we live as a part of a society that believes that to take the life of anyone should cause us challenge. And that's one of the messages of Parshat Vayishlach. That's our shlichut to the world. That's the, the mission that we're meant to give to the world. So there's a, a lot more to talk about here, but we'll stop here. Uh, a lot to think about. I want to give everybody a huge shkoyach and a Shabbat Shalom.